Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Hey, before I get into the word this morning, you had a little card in your bulletin this morning. If you filled this out last week, please don't fill it out again, unless you changed all your answers since last week and now you want to be honest. But if you didn't get one of these cards, see if you can just maybe borrow one from somebody next to you there who doesn't need theirs. And what I need you to do real quickly, if you didn't fill this card out, take it out with me right now. We're going to fill it in right now, and you're going to pass it towards the center of the church. And then uh, some folks will come pick that up, I'm trusting. But this, call, this is a called a Holy Spirit series prep card. And we are beginning today a series on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. And, you know, we are in a place where we're just seeking to serve effectively a growing and changing audience in the church. And so what we don't want to do is be guilty of assuming that everybody's on a page that everybody's not on and kind of knowing where do we need to bring some emphasis to help folks get a clear understanding of the Bible's teaching on the ministry of the Spirit. And so this is a little bit of a survey, and I'm not going to go through it in detail, but here's the questions. Check which one, just check one in the first question, best describes your church background. So look through those three options. Check the one that best describes your experience in participation in a church. The second question, check all that describe your personal experience. So you may have two or three of these that describe your experience as it comes to things pertaining to the ministry of the Spirit. Please check whichever ones apply to you. Next question is, my experience of the Holy Spirit over the past few years has, and you have three choices there, increased, kind of been flat, or been a decreasing experience in your life. You don't need to put your names on these, so these can be anonymous just for the sake of, you can if you want, but you won't be punished or detained after service if we read these and don't like your answers. My previous, last one, my previous experience with Pentecostal or charismatic teaching and practice was, was it a positive one? Was it a negative experience? Or was this kind of not an area that you've gotten much experience in? So fill those out real quick. And one last thing, on the back, if, if you would believe that the Lord has given to you a spiritual gift, without me clarifying what that is, uh, write that down on the back. Just write down what you believe your spiritual gift is on the back. And in just a second, these guys are going to come up to the front and start walking down the road. So as soon as you fill that out, just, just pass it to the middle, and uh, these guys will come collect that from you. All right, open up in the Word today to Haggai. If you just open your Bible, I'm sure it will just flop right open to that place because you've been spending a lot of time reading Haggai, I'm sure. If you can find Matthew and take a left, you will go through Malachi, you'll go through Zechariah, and you will arrive at Haggai. Haggai is one of the last prophets of the Old Testament Probably not one that gets visited a lot for no other reason because you can't pronounce his name. But let me give you a little bit of a background here for Haggai. Uh, The time details are very important for this prophet before we read a few verses out of chapter 1. 
what commentator Alec Motier will hear a little bit from today. He says, in 538 B.C., exiles led by Zerubbabel returned to the land of Judah. At the site of Solomon's temple, they built an altar and reinstituted the sacrifices called for by the Mosaic law. They also prepared to rebuild the temple, but work stopped in response to opposition from neighboring enemies. In the 16 years that followed, the people built themselves houses, but no work was done on the Lord's house until the prophets Haggai and Zechariah rebuked and challenged the people. All right, so time-wise here, you are, you're on the other side of the exile. If you're following Old Testament history, there was a point in which the life of God's people became so offensive to God that he deported them. He kicked them out of their homeland. He kicked them away from the temple, and they went into captivity in a land called Babylon. Now, they had been there for 70 years. They returned, and then upon their return to this holy place, this place of God's designation, this unique place in all the earth, unique because the temple of God was there, they began to restore some things in their lives that had been misplaced. They began to rebuild the temple, but they got discouraged and got opposed, and then for 16 years there was neglect until God, right, you read the prophets sometimes. How many of y'all see the prophets as the mercy of God? The prophets, right, they, they sound like these heavy-handed, gun-slinging, difficult guys who come show up and tell you everything that's wrong. But, you know, the alternative to that is God just leaves you alone. He leaves you in your ways and then eventually just visits severe judgment on you. So the visit from the prophets sounds like it's a, it's a harsh deal. It's, it's the mercy of God. So here comes the mercy of God. Let's start reading here in Haggai verse 1. Chapter 1. The second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time is not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves. But no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, 
on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Lord, as always, we are grateful for your word, your living word, preserved, and this morning, Lord, you desire to communicate it to us, to find the address where we live individually and as a church, and bring this word to bear upon our lives. So, Father, we welcome you to do that. Reveal yourself to us in these passages, in Jesus' name. Well, here's an invitation. This would be an interesting invitation for God with any of us. When God sits down with you and basically wants to do a review, and he requests of you that you consider your ways. He says, let's have a look at life. Let's see how things are going. And interesting, here's a people that God has to send someone to because they're, they're, they're not tuning in to God. He's having to, in his mercy, interrupt their busy lives and get them to pay attention by the voice of a prophet. Now, these, these were urgent people because these are not passive people. When you read the description, they're living life. They're busy. they got stuff going on. They're even building houses fairly luxurious houses, it appears, while something else is being neglected. Something else is being overlooked. Something that God begins to say is a major concern for him. It's not a concern for them, but it is a concern for him. But, but what I want to highlight here is the condition of their lives. Listen to what's described here. Right? They were, in verses 5 through 6, there you find that they were, they were sowing seed. Right? This, is, this is not a situation of dire poverty. It's not as though no one's got any seed to sow. They've, they've got no ability to have jobs. They're sowing seed. But in the midst of their sowing, there's a mystery that's not taking place. Right? When you sow stuff in the ground, how many of you guys are, are like planters? You plant stuff, you play in the garden. Wow, that's it, huh? Desperate men. What are, what are the rest of y'all watch TV most of the time? <laughs> well, when you plant something, there's a little bit of this mystery about planting, isn't there? I mean, you, you stick this, this seed, the seed you could have had in a sack for, for years. You stick it in the ground, and you walk away. Rain falls on it. It's getting its private moment down inside the dirt, and it just bursts into life. It starts growing and emerging out of the ground. And then something in it tells it to produce fruit. And it begins to have little things growing off the edges of it. This this is a mystery here. But God says, you know what, you guys, you're sowing, but the mystery's not happening. It's just seed in the ground. Oh, there's a little bit of growth here and there. You guys aren't dead. So there must be something growing, but it certainly isn't happening at the level and in the way that it's supposed to happen, right? You're sowing seed, you're eating and drinking, right? You're living life, you're, you know, what is eating and drinking in the Bible is is a picture of, of need in man, right? We eat and we drink because something in us needs something from outside of us. We're not self-sustained. If you stop eating and drinking, you die. So it's this picture that God gives us that you're not all right on your own. You need something from out there. And so you're eating and drinking. You're acquiring stuff out there, but you're never satisfied. It's not fixing you, is it? There's something missing. 
you're going through the motions, you're doing the stuff, but, but there's something missing, something I'm going to call the, the intangibles aren't there. Right? How many of us know that, that, that we live our lives for intangible things? We want to buy stuff, we want to go places, we want to touch things, we want to be around people, but all those things are a means for us to acquire things you can't touch. Right? You can't touch love, you can't touch joy. You can't touch fulfillment. You can't touch growth, satisfaction. You can't touch those things. They're intangibles. And God says, you guys are going through the motions, but you're not experiencing the intangibles. There's provision. Right? You're putting on clothes, but, but there's no effect of the clothes. You're not warm. You're not receiving the benefit from it, but yet you're still doing these things. You hope for much, but then there was a return of little. You had high expectations, but you had very little return. Mr. Motier says, what the prophet exposes here is not hardship, but non-fulfillment. They had seed to sow, food to eat, wine to drink, clothes to wear, gainful employment, but no true satisfaction. Their problem was not lack of goods, but of good. The harvest was not commensurate with the outlay. They had goods, but the good life eluded them. They were not hungry, but neither were they satisfied. They were dressed, but they were not comfortable. And here's an interesting thing. I think I wrote this in your outline. You can be God's people, and they were, in God's place, and they were, doing some God activity, and they were, while not experiencing the fulfillment of God's good. That's a lesson that needs to be taken from this passage and imported today. You can be God's people in God's place doing some God activity and not experiencing God's good in the midst of that. And now listen, they weren't experiencing judgment in this moment either. They had just returned from days of judgment. They had just come back from living in exile Things were much, much worse. So this, this is not as bad as it could be. Life is kind of okay. They've returned to the homeland. They have jobs. There's an economy taking place. They're doing stuff. But life is missing something. Life together is missing something. I think I'll put this in the outline. This pattern that they had created became accepted for them as normal. It's 16 years of this. 16 years. And, and they're not crying out to God. Right? This, this, is, this is not the desperation of, from Egypt that the cries of the people of God are going up before God. This is God recognizing lack. This is not them lacking, recognizing lack. They don't cry for Haggai to show up. God in his mercy sends Haggai to show up. So what's amazing is for 16 years you can get used to this and call it normal. This diminished reality of the work of God in their midst was normal. Which is the reason why I titled the message today, A a New Normal. I I think we need a new normal. They needed a new normal. Why was this happening? Look in verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house that I may take pleasure in 
it that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why were they experiencing this lack in their life? God was making it to feel that way. God was actually the one who was behind this. God comes to a place where he says, you know, this, this life you're, you're living, doesn't, it doesn't seem to bother you that something's missing. And God began to extract from them even more. And, and even then, it didn't seem to bother them that they were missing something. They were missing something very important. They were missing something that was very important to God, that was of critical, vital importance to God. Now understand, they're, they're in Jerusalem, right? If you go back in history, you find out the, the geography where they're living is the promised land. They're living in the promised land. But they're missing something that God says was absolutely critical. Now if you, if you don't get this, you really miss the heart of God for what we're about to learn over the next several weeks. There was something of a passion in God, and that's what I want us to discover today. Your next little headline there says, From Mountain to tabernacle, to temple, to church. Look in Exodus chapter 19 with me. At some point, this group of people knows of this God, but he's sort of like the God in the mountain. That's who he is. They know he's a creator. They know his relationship from the past. Exodus 19 Let's just start reading in verse 2. Now, this is the moment in which God has summoned his people from out of Egypt. All the miracles have been performed. They've been rescued. And they're gathering now at Mount Sinai. It says, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Now, where is God at? God lives on the mountain. God's the mountain God. How did Moses meet this God? On the mountain, on the same mountain, in a burning bush. He meets God on a mountain. Moses goes up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain. Right? So this is God's geography. He's God in the mountain. Saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I brought you to me. That's what God did with the people. I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God reveals something. He says, I've called you. Now, can you just go here with me? Because sometimes our theology misses something here. How many nations did God call like this? One. How many nations do you think existed at this moment in the history of man? Hundreds? I don't know. Out of all those nations, God said, this one right here, I'm calling this one right here to myself. And you're going to be unique. I'm going to relate to you in a way that I'm not going to relate to anyone else. 
You're going to be to me a kingdom of priests. You're going to uniquely have a relationship with me that no one else is about to be afforded. I'm making this deal with you. Now, do you, do you get that? Because, you know, when you read the Bible, you find no accounts of God making a deal with that with any other nation on the planet. Egypt doesn't get offered a deal. Cush doesn't get offered a deal. Assyria doesn't get offered a deal. Nations we don't even know that existed during this time, they don't get offered this deal. God uniquely sets his affection upon a people and brings them to himself. Now, when they arrive, God is about to create an arrangement for this relationship to take place. Here's the difficulty. This holy God, the God who makes the mountains quake and these loud noises like trumpets come blasting from the mountain, the people are afraid of the mountain God. Remember, they back away. They send Moses up to go talk to God. This God is bringing a people to himself. And if you read from Exodus 20 all the way to the end of Exodus, there's all kinds of regulations that are given. There's practices in worship, how to approach this God, how to handle your life. If you should do this wrong or if you should do this wrong, you need to do this and you need to do that. And God creates this whole structure. But here's why. Because he wants to be with them. And that's going to be a problem. Because God's a holy God, and he wants to hang out with sinful people. So why do you get all these regulations? When you read in the Old Testament, there's there's lots of information about sacrifices to be offered, and who can offer them, and who the priests are, and how to have access to God, and gatherings that are going to take place throughout the year, and common practices of approaching God, and how not to approach God. Why? Because God is a holy God. And there's not a person on the planet who's holy, not a one. So these guys find themselves in the same boat that we're in. Sinners being invited into a relationship with a holy God. But here's what's most critical to not overlook. Because it's amazing how many folks walk away with the Ten Commandments. This is the Ten Commandments, right? It's the Ten Commandments. It's the law. But we overlook the reason why the law ever had to be given to this group of people. And that comes from Exodus chapter 25. Just turn over a couple of passages. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take up for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution from me. And he tells them what some of that stuff is. Verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary. Some translations may say, let them build me a tabernacle that I may dwell in their midst. That I may dwell in their midst. Here's the heart heart desire of God. I don't want to be the God on the mountain. I don't want to be the man upstairs. I don't want to be some God who's just sovereignly, distantly over everything. I want to be the God in the midst of my people. That's who I want to be. So I've called you and summoned you, and I brought you here to myself, and I want you to build me a place so that my presence will be in your midst. All right, now immediately, you just got introduced to two distinct things, a distinct people and a distinct idea. Please don't overlook the distinct idea here. 
Because if you're, if you're a first grader, you know that God is everywhere, isn't he? God is everywhere. Why would God need instructions to be given to a people to build a place for him to dwell? He's everywhere. Doesn't he already dwell everywhere? Well, when we read the Bible, we're going to find out that God doesn't mean dwell the same way when he mentions his presence. There's the presence of God that no one can escape. It's everywhere. And then there's the intentional manifesting of God amongst a people. That is not true everywhere. It's true in certain conditions. It's true for a certain people. But this is the heart of God. If you want to understand why all these other regulations exist, why there's a temple, why you approach a certain way, why you relate to God a certain way, it's because the presence of God wants to dwell amongst his people. Mr. Motier says, The order of events in Exodus through Leviticus shows that the tent, the tabernacle, comes first as a means of the grace of the indwelling God. And that the cultic, Levitical round, in other words, the, the religious practices here, meaning the word cultic, of sacrifices is necessary because the Holy One dwells there. If He doesn't dwell there, this stuff's not necessary. It's because of the presence of a holy God amongst his people. The normative heart of the Israelite community is not the cultus, the practice, the externals, but the indwelling holy God in whose presence his people are made secure only by the shedding of blood. Okay, it was a constant problem for the Israelite to set this vital factor aside and miss the heart of God and get absorbed in the externals. So much so that they had this amazing ability to keep the externals going while ignoring the heart of why God even required the externals. Right? You read these pleads from God in the Old Testament. Isaiah spoke of a day where God cried out and just said, oh, that someone would just close the doors. Just sh- shut the doors to the temple. That someone would just close it. Well, God, Why? Because people were continuing to walk through those doors in an unholy, ungodly way. Their life was not about God dwelling with them. Their life was not about the presence of God in their life. But they managed to still have church. They managed to still get together. They still went through the rituals. They honored these sacrifices that God had put in place. And God just said one day, I I wish you'd just close the door on this. If you're just going to go through externals and you miss the heart of why it is, it's, it's about relating to me. It's about me communing with you. It's about your life being able to receive from my life. And that involves your faith and your obedience and your trust and your hope in me. It doesn't just involve sacrificing some animals. See, they have missed the point along the way. Motir goes on and says, the house was the outward form of the real presence of the Lord among his people. To refuse to build the house was at best saying that it did not matter whether the Lord was present with them. Sixteen years. Sixteen years, really? It's been that long? Oh, my gosh. I've just been so busy, you know? Sixteen years. It's been that long? Wow. Right, now understand... We've got a lot of external stuff to look at as we look in these passages. But what God's after in the heart today might sound that way to some of us. 16 months, 16 weeks, 16 whatevers 
between my heart relating and receiving and communing with God the way in which he intended. Wow, has it been, has it been that long? I mean, wow, really? I've just been so busy. Well, they were so busy. They were leading busy, busy lives. And yet they had set aside what was most important in the heart of God. Now, listen carefully to this. And I say this because we teach so much about the cross. That I'm going to say this to give us some kind of idea about how to embrace this teaching in the Spirit. I think I wrote this in your outline. The great unfolding of God's plan culminates not in the cross, but in our restoration to him. Correctly understanding the cross means understanding that it is the ultimate means to the ultimate end. Did you get that? To come to the cross and to have a future where God is a stranger where God is not near, where there's not intimacy and fellowship and communion with God, yet I can explain the cross, I understand what it accomplished, I, I sing about it, I'm so grateful that it occurred, is to miss the point. The cross was the ultimate means to the ultimate end, right? Isn't that what Peter said? I think Matt taught all these, uh, Jeff taught all these verses a couple weeks ago, 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Why was Christ put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit? It was to bring us to God. It was to restore us to God, to relationship with a God who didn't want to be the God in the mountain. He wanted to be the God in us. He wanted to dwell in us. This is a huge priority to God. Listen, let me, let me just stop and make a, an emphasis here. That, that verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, is, it has a critical component in it that is all throughout the Bible that is amazingly overlooked by religious people. It's this one fact. At some point in your life, you've got to first come to recognize your need to be restored to God. You're not born right with God. You, you, don't, you don't come to church because you are right with God, and then you're looking to, for church to help you just kind of live a better life. You know, live a better marriage. I want to live a little bit more morally. I want God to tweak and improve me. I, you know, I want to be kind of a part of this scene now, the first, the starting blocks for coming to a relationship with God is to first recognize you don't have a relationship with God. The reason why Christ did what he did was to restore us to God. Did you, have you ever come to grips with the, with the fact that you needed to be restored to God? That your life was not on good terms with God? That's why Christ had to come do what he did. He had to take our place. He had to do something about my sin that separates me from God. Whether I think my sin's a big deal or not, some of us think that we're nice sinners. 
right? We, we're not news headline centers. We, you know, we, we haven't ripped somebody off millions of dollars. We haven't murdered anybody or committed adultery. And we're not in the news. But we're still sinners before a, a righteous, holy, perfect God requiring something to be done for that to change. And that's what Christ came to do, to restore us to God. And this relationship now, it's a holy obsession, if you will, for God. That's why I wanted to start this series by getting at it from God's perspective first. Mr. Motier's thought again. It was in these terms that Haggai explained the people's circumstance. God was in the system, but he was not their priority. In the Lord's eyes, however, there was more to it than that. He was in the system, all right, but he was not in their midst. This was the significance of the house. Not the stone and timber, not even the ritual of which the house was the center, but that the Lord had commanded his people to provide for him a dwelling so that he might dwell among them. This was the great passion of God. I want to be in your midst. And for 16 years, I haven't been in your midst. Because it's not a priority for you. But it's a priority for God. This is humbling. That God wants to dwell with us. We're, We're just not that impressive of a group of people. For the God of the universe to want to have nearness and communion and fellowship and connection to us. Does that blow your mind? That should freak you out. I mean, there's some people that if they came to my house, they'd freak me out. I mean, it's like, they're coming to my house. That dude's coming to my house. This is God insisting on dwelling with us. And and apparently, if you read through Scripture, it's a constant issue with God, right? Are you still there in Exodus? Exodus. Moses Moses gets this. It wasn't long until... God makes this arrangement. You're my people. Here's the rules. Moses doesn't even get back down from the mountain before the people have done what? They've, they've made a golden calf, and they've begun to worship a false god. All right? Well, this, this affects the presence of God amongst his people. Please make a note of that. That will be important as we move through this series. Sin affects the unique presence of God amongst his people. It doesn't make God no longer omnipresent. He certainly is omnipresent. But it affects his presence amongst his people. So much so that, look what's said here in verse 3 of Exodus 33. God tells Moses, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are stiff-necked people. There's, There's still a plan. Still going to bring you into the promised land, but I'm not going with you. I wonder, I wonder how, many, how many believers would posture themselves the way Moses does at this moment. You're being offered the promises. You can still have the milk and honey. You can still have life. You can have it this way. You can have this part. You can have that aspect. But, but you're not going to have my presence with you. A little bit later, Moses begins to cry out to God in intercession. Moses was quite an intercessor, much to be learned from him. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, You say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways 
that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. God, if you're not going to dwell in the midst of your people the way in which your heart's desire is to dwell in the midst of us, we'll stay right here. We don't, we don't want to go on. We don't want life apart from your presence. We don't want to live in some land milk and flowing with milk and honey, all kinds of great things. We, we're not so much after the promises, Moses was saying, as we're after your presence. Now, this, this God is a God who's abundant in promises, so you, you're never going to get God to do away with his promises. But what's amazing is you could be a people who live in a land of milk and honey and stuff and promises and not notice that the presence of God wasn't there. Now, Moses wasn't that way. Moses said, deal off. God, I hear you telling us that we can go forward without you. Uh-uh, we don't want that deal. We only want to be your people if you're in our midst, God, and we'll stay right here. If you'll dwell with us, we'll dwell right here at this mountain. Dwell with us, though. Right? And when you find the rest of scriptures, you find this is a passion, right? That's about 1450 B.C. Some 700 years later, Isaiah saw the same thing. He saw this day of the presence of God. He says, for I will pour out on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So there's a day that Isaiah is seeing of the spirit and presence of God that he is foreseeing. He's looking forward to that day. Jeremiah, some 150 years later, still talking about it. This is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. No longer stone tablets, no longer external teachings, but now a presence on the inside. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Ezekiel prophesies at the same time, says some of the same things, but he, he adds some thought here. Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You you understand, this was a foreign idea. Spirit of God within? That's why there will be a day that's coming, God says, when you'll no longer teach every man, know the Lord, know the Lord. Like God has allowed this one guy to know the Lord, and then he teaches everybody else to know the Lord. Right? That's what prophets did, and that's what priests did. They connected with God in a way that others were not allowed to connect with God. God says there's coming a day, though, where every person will have unique access to me, and I will dwell in their hearts. And no longer will that man have to wait for somebody else to teach him. It doesn't mean God won't use teaching, but it means you're going to have a work of the Spirit of God in you now. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are waiting for that day. John the Baptist was looking for that day. This is his moment of introduction to Christ. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. 
because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Spirit. And did you see two things? John the Baptist would be considered the last of the Old Testament prophets. Are you still in the Old Testament at this moment? I know you, you think you're in the New Testament, but technically you're still in the Old Testament. And John the Baptist would be the last prophet. And what is he looking for? He's looking for two things. He's looking for a lamb who will take away the sins of the world and restore us to God. And he's looking for the filling, baptizing of the Holy Spirit, the one who will do that. And you understand, that's what John the Baptist saw when he looked up. He saw, here it is. The culmination of it all has come to this moment. The one who will remove the barrier between us and God so that we might be filled with his spirit. Do you understand what John the Baptist was longing for? He was longing for the same thing that God has always been longing for. This is why everybody spoke of this, because God spoke of it so much. It's all over Jesus as well. I mean, so many passages here. I just grabbed a couple. John chapter 7. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, right, remember Isaiah? I'll pour my spirit upon the thirsty ground. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What was on the mind of Christ? Was the cross on the mind of Christ? Yes, he set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. But for a reason. Because on the other side of that cross was a day of restoration between God and man. And the presence of God to dwell once again, to tabernacle amongst men, to be in their lives. That's what he sees. Luke chapter 24, right now, Luke chapter 24, remember where we are here in time. We're on the other side of the cross, and we're on the other side of the resurrection. At this point, it, it seems as though it's done, right? I mean, the deal is done. The cross, the resurrection, we're good. Listen to how Jesus sounds. Behold, he says this to his disciples. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Jesus spoke over and over and over again about the Spirit. On the other side of the cross and the resurrection, he is still speaking about the Spirit. The moment's coming. God is about to return. That's what the cross was trying to accomplish. And this passion in God, it never goes away. It never goes away. It's never not a priority to God. We get well into the New Testament. We have James still writing about it. James 4, verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. God is still passionate about that same thing. This, this, This is the crowning moment of God's restoration of man. Listen to these thoughts. Arthur Pink quotes Samuel Chadwick here. He says, not at all too strong was the language of Samuel Chadwick when he said, the gift of the Spirit is the crowning mercy of God in Christ Jesus. 
it was for this all the rest was. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection and ascension were all preparatory to Pentecost. Without the gift of the Spirit, all the rest would be useless. Can you imagine saying that? I don't even like to repeat that. That sounds too freaky to me. (laughs) The great thing in Christianity is the gift of the Spirit. The essential, vital, central element in the life of the soul and the work of the church is the person of the Spirit. Can Can I read that again? That's too important. The essential vital, central element in the life of the soul, right, in today, in right now, in what's going on in your soul, right? And don't get confused here, okay? This is not a promotion of the Spirit above Christ. This is not a promoting the work of the Spirit above the work of Christ. The work of, if the work of Christ doesn't take place, this day never occurs. If you don't have the cross, you don't have anything of what we're going to talk about by way of the Spirit. He's inaccessible to us. But as it comes to living on a daily basis in the matters of the soul and the work of the church, this is a true statement. The essential, vital, central element in the life of the soul and the work of the church is the person of the Spirit. C.J. Mahaney says, Is the communion of the Spirit as much a reality to you as the love of the Father and the grace of Jesus Christ? Actually, perhaps the love of the Father and the grace of Jesus Christ isn't as real to you because... You don't know and haven't pursued communion with the Holy Spirit. And we can be very deep and rich in our doctrinal understandings of the work of Christ on the cross and the personhood of God. But if the Spirit of God and His work is a stranger to us, it might be that you don't know those things nearly as well as you think you know those things. And maybe we're not nearly as affected by them as we could be and should be if our communion with the Spirit were making those things come to life for us in a greater way in our own souls. In your outline there, it says, we were to be a people who became the temple of God, the dwelling place of God's presence. We were to be ever-growing in awareness, consciousness, and cooperation with the Spirit of God who has been restored to us. I came across this interesting quote from George Smeaton, a theologian, writer in the late 1800s, wrote a volume called The Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, what makes his particular quote interesting is before he wrote this volume, he had written two volumes on the atonement. He was considered by many to be the utmost theologian of his time on explaining the importance of the atonement, the work of Christ. Matter of fact, Sinclair Ferguson speaks of Smeaton this way. He was an outstanding scholar with a brilliant mind and a deep love for Christ. My own conviction is that these two great volumes, these volumes on the atonement, should regularly be in the hands of every person who teaches and preaches the gospel of Christ. They are treasure troves. All right, so this guy didn't lack an understanding of the atonement and the work of Christ. But he said this. The topic on which we enter is by no means superfluous at this time. Except where Puritan influences are still at work, we may safely affirm that the doctrine of the Spirit is almost entirely ignored. 
the representatives of modern theology, it is well known, have almost wholly abandoned it. Wherever Christianity has been a living power, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has uniformly been regarded equally with the atonement and justification by faith as the article of a standing or falling church. The distinctive feature of of Christianity as it addresses itself to man's experience is the work of the Spirit, which not only elevates it far above all philosophical speculation, but also above every other form of religion. By maintaining silence on this doctrine, one one of the grand provisions of the gospel for meeting the wants of mankind is omitted. This is the cry of Moses, God don't, don't let us go up from here. He went on and he said, Lord, how will anybody know that we're distinct from all the other peoples of the earth unless your presence goes with us? Listen, we're not just distinct because we have a belief system. We're distinct people because the very presence of God dwells amongst his people. And we have a belief system. Both of those things are critically important. All right, now let, let, me, let me pull us into a thought here. Because I think the, the challenge I want to get before us in this series is heavy on the emphasis of connecting with and receiving from the Spirit. I don't believe God's going to have us spend a great deal of time on just basic education about who the Spirit is. As much as developing in us a greater ability to be aware of the Spirit's presence, a greater ability to receive from the Spirit to connect with the Spirit, to fellowship with the Spirit, to enjoy the presence of God in real ways and effective ways. But, but here's an important little thought here. Wrote it down in your outline. There's an experiential difference between remembering what God has done in the past and engaging what God is doing in the present. Can you just go there with me for a second? There there is an experiential difference between the work of remembering what God has done, right? Much of the ministry, which is a ministry of the Spirit, of teaching is quite often a remembering. We teach doctrine, therefore we pull from the Bible truths and we set it before ourselves or we set it before an audience, And we remember, we look back at the work of Christ. We observe prophecies leading up to it. We we come to understand something about it. There is an experiential difference between what it feels like to remember the work of God and what it feels like to engage the work of God right now in this building, right now. The reality of the presence of God really being here is going to feel different than when I pick up this rich book and I read from it. And there may be some similarities, but there may be many, many differences. And one of the things that we're going to spend some time is is just learning the ways in which the Spirit seeks to connect with us so that we can pay attention to receiving in those ways. But it would help us to recognize Some of us, and I find myself in this category to some degree, some of us have gotten much, much better at 
remembering aspects of what God is and who he is and what he's done, more so than engaging God right now in this body and what he wants to say to Keith Collins right now in this meeting. When I go home, when I awake in the morning, when I am communing with a living God dwelling in my midst, one of the things that I'm concerned about, uh, I shared this with the pastors months ago as we began to talk about this series, was that even for, even for us who have the benefit of, on a weekly basis, taking hours out of our week and studying and praying and connecting with God for the sake of messages and sharing the gospel, it's quite possible, right? For instance, George Smeaton, Right, the guy just quoted. Uh, I'm reading his quote, I'm reading his thought, and I'm being taught by it. God is using this man and his insight to teach me. The Holy Spirit is in that. Right? But there's there's an aspect here, and this is not to denigrate teaching, otherwise we just none of us need to show up next week. Uh, teaching is something God does. But see, there's an aspect here to where at some point somebody like a George Smeaton got that from God, and he wrote it down, and the rest of us got it from him writing it down. Now, do you understand the difference there? Now, I'm not saying that God intends that George Smeaton wouldn't have something unique to say to the body of Christ, but the sheer mechanics of it. At some, I don't know what Smeaton looked like. I, I know I do have a different experience of sometimes I'm just waiting on God. I'm waiting for an impression uh, a leading, a prompting. I mean, this series that we're doing comes that way. It's not like we subscribe to Preaching Magazine and the next subject for this seven months is the Holy Spirit. And so we read it on a page. We're doing the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, we pray, wait, seek to be sensitive to God, and God communes with us and communicates to us. And God uses what we read as well. But do you understand, if the only thing that I'm getting used to is a reading dynamic, where I'm, I'm learning by reading, and the Spirit is using reading and learning to connect me to God, I'm getting kind of one-dimensional, and I could begin to live on sort of second-hand interaction with God. Right? You're coming to a meeting. You're trusting that somebody prayed and sought God, hung out with God, got got bothered by God, wrote those things down, is coming into a meeting to say, hey, listen, this is, this is what's spilling over out of my heart for my time with God this week. All right, that's how teaching should operate. But in some ways, you're not interacting with the Spirit the way the speaker interacted with the Spirit. You're getting it secondhand. It's not a bad thing, but you don't want it to be the only thing because at some point you can begin to not have any idea what engaging God sounds like for you. That guy figured out what engaging God sounded like, but you don't know what it feels like. It's foreign. It's like a different language. And it is. And here's an interesting thought from Jack Deere, the book that we've recommended that you guys get a copy of. I think some, many are available. He deals with this idea that Christianity may be turning into a, you know, a relationship with a book. Right, as, as important as you guys know how we treat the Word of God. This is the Word of God. It's the Bible. It's precious. It's unique. But God didn't restore you to a book. He restored you to himself. 
He didn't call you to a mountain. He celebrated the day that what I wrote down on tablets one day would dwell in you. So God doesn't call you to have a relationship with a book. The book is a means of having a relationship with God. But in many corners of the church world, the book reigns. And relating to God through the Spirit does not. Listen to this interesting thought from Jack Deere. He says, the framers of the Constitution of the United States were mostly deists. Before you start loving the idea that we're a Christian nation, blah, blah, blah. If you go back and you read carefully, these guys had some huge theological problems. They were deists. They believed in a religion of morality based on natural reason, not on divine revelation. They believed in God, but they didn't think he interfered with natural laws governing the universe. He created the world and then left it alone. Like someone who wound up a giant clock and then left it to run down on its own. Right, now that's right. God shows up big in some moment. He winds up creation and he steps back. And you're going to have a relationship with this God. Well, you know, he's distant. He's uninvolved. He started things off. We're acknowledging God. You know, when you read through the documents that, that began our country, there's an acknowledgement of God. What you, the mistake you make is that you fill in what you know about God rather than what they thought about God. You're thinking of an imminent God who is near, who gives the Holy Spirit, who regenerates, who walks with. And they're not thinking that. Most of them weren't. Many of them. I don't even know how many of them. All right, but listen to this. A Bible deist, not a natural deist, but a Bible deist, right? A person who believes that, that God spoke in time past and that was written down for us, which is absolutely true. God spoke, and it has been written down for us. And the, way, in the same way in which a deist kind of says, God created, wound up the clock, and stepped back and let it run its course. Similarly, Bible deists, the way Deer's using this thought is, God revealed himself right here. And he stepped back and he said, you want to know me? Get to know my word. You want to know me? And then God stepped back. Like God went silent, and the Bible's got everything to say that God has to say. That's what a Bible deist is. Now listen where he goes. A Bible deist has a lot in common with a natural deist. Bible deists have a, different, have a great difficulty separating Christ and the Bible. Unconsciously in their minds, the Bible and Christ merge into one entity. A Bible deist reads a passage like Isaiah 28, 29. All this comes from the Lord Almighty, wonderful in counsel and magnificent in wisdom. And his or her mind translated into something like this. All this also comes from the Bible, which is wonderful in counsel and magnificent in wisdom. Bible deists read John 10, 27 like this. My sheep listen to the Bible. I know them and they follow the Bible. They hear Jesus say, if I go away, I will send you a perfect book. What God used to do in the first century is now done by the Bible. You find yourself in there at all? So now listen, because we'll have a lot of time to develop some thoughts here. What I'm not saying is to be people who are devoted to the Spirit, we're going to have to get rid of this book. All right, can everybody repeat that back to me? That is not what I'm saying. Right now, I know that some of us are saying, hey, you know, remember when you sent out that card, bad experience from Pentecost? Yeah, you're starting to sound like one of those bad experiences I had where, you know, all of a sudden the Bible's not necessary. Okay, no, not at all. Not at all. Okay, not at all. 
This is the absolute, pure, clear revelation of God. Okay, but nowhere, nowhere do I find when I read this Bible the idea that God ever, 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 ever had intended that he would write everything down in a book and then say, okay, now just know the book. You don't need to know me. Well, the book will show you me. When did, when did we think God went silent? When did we think that God no longer by his spirit wanted to dwell amongst his people in unique, conscious real, effective, meaningful, experiential ways. Where did we get the idea that just because God chose a perfect revelation of himself in word form written down, that he no longer wanted us to commune with the Spirit? Where did we get the idea that Jesus, who was so excited about the promise of the Father being sent upon you, wait in Jerusalem for this promise? Remember, Jesus didn't say, listen, I've already taught you what you need to know. You already have the word. Now go be about evangelizing the world. No. Jesus said, wait, even though you've got the word, you still need to wait. Because the crowning moment is about to come. And that crowning moment is the indwelling and empowering spirit of God coming into your life where you will commune with God and know God and relate to God in a way that's going to blow your mind. Now, listen. What we encounter in Haggai is a group of people who for 16 years were not pursuing the presence of God. They had the trappings. They had the stuff on the outside. They had the ceremonies. They had a life in a particular geography, the geography God told them to live in. They're doing some God stuff, but God is not dwelling in their midst. And that was normal. For them. Do you think if they bumped into each other, I don't know, maybe they were, were they having a conversation that sounded like, man, dude, this, did you go to temple yesterday? Yeah. It's lousy, huh? Yeah. I don't know, man, it just feels empty. You know? I feel like anything's going on. Well, you know, I got to believe if that was kind of happening, you'd had a bunch of people crying out to God. They got used to it being that way. It's just the way it was. Right? That's just the way church is, right? Right? We come to church. It's just the way church is. Sometimes we're affected, sometimes we're not. Just sitting through meetings, listening to somebody secondhand, hand us some ideas about God, maybe affected by that. And the danger is the church starts thinking that's normal. Okay, can I tell you, this is, this is a series on a new normal. Okay, don't, don't confuse what we're trying to do here. I think I'm right in saying this as best I can discern it. This is not a series on revival. Right, some of you guys have been in churches where, some, you know, the teaching of revival, a scheduled revival. Some people, revival means, okay, that, that means everything's going to get weird, right? That's what we're about to do. We're going to have revival, so it's all going to get weird. Oh, uh, here we go. Um, no. No, you know, God can let it get as weird as it needs to be. But I'm not after what I think revival, historically, revival is moments where, where God unusually interrupts the life of the church. Unusually. Right? And we, we thank God for revival. But nobody should get addicted to revival 
in the sense that the church, you know, should always live at this level because historically revivals come in waves and they go and they come again and they go. What I'm talking about here is just normal. It's what we see when we pick up the Bible. So you know, we read the, the book of 1 Corinthians and we're some 30 years after almost the day of Pentecost. By the time this book is written, the church has been around for 30 years. It's, it's not this inaugural moment. This isn't the day of Pentecost where tongues of fire. Okay, tongues of fire. I'm not thinking that's going to happen. No, I'm not. I'm not, thinking that's what, I'm not thinking that's normal. I'm thinking that's unusual activity of God. But when I read 1 Corinthians, I'm thinking that's normal. Is there any reason why you would read 1 Corinthians and say, oh, no, that's, revi- that's a church in revival. That church is in revival. Does it sound like they're in revival? Did you read the whole book? I mean, it really doesn't sound like they're in revival. It sounds like they're revolting in some ways. Um, but there's this work of God going on, and Paul steps into it to try and give them some direction on what sounds normal. It's normal. Because it's, it's not a series on, let's, let's be a church doing something weird. Okay, we all read this Bible. Let's just be a church doing what's in this Bible. Let's figure out what's happening in our lives individually and our relating to God, not just relating to a book, not just relating to meetings, not just coming to the God on the mountain, not just having to come to a service to experience the presence of God, but to believe what God has desired for us. I, I, I want a new normal. That's why we're doing this series. I think God wants a new normal in the midst of his people. Let me ask the band to go ahead and come up. Let me read this last quote here for you. Martin Lloyd-Jones pastored a church in London, England, a church where there was not a severe experiential component of the activity of the Spirit in the church. But for Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was aware of the need that was there for that to occur. He preached this message. Listen to this thought. And now he's referring to the Corinthians here. He says, here is a gathering of men and women who are filled with the Spirit of God. And each one of them has got something. Remember the little phrase, when you come together, one of you has a psalm, one of you has a teaching, one of you has, all right, let everything be done in order, but, but don't skip past, all right, we would skip to the order, oh, it's order, God's a God of order, all right, well, did you skip past the part that said each one of them had something, all right, now, do you understand how easy it is to be 16 years worth of, I show up for meetings all the time, I haven't got nothing, I mean, maybe I bring a cake or something if it's my turn to bring dessert, When you gather, the assumption, the normal activity is each one has a something. Something from God. Something from the Spirit. Some gift, some impartation is taking place. I mean, can you just ponder this with me for a moment? Coming into your covenant group meeting, right? And you need settings, by the way, like a covenant group meeting. Much of what we're going to describe in the coming weeks doesn't work here. Some of what we will describe works well here. Some of it needs a smaller setting. 
where relationships are bound together, walking through our lives. Do you feel the responsibility that somehow the Spirit of God has given you grace, uniquely given grace that's in the form of what the Bible calls a gift? It's a a unique ability for you to bring to the moment. It's a tool for you to use. And you come to a, a meeting and somebody begins to share a prayer request about something going on in their life, some situation. They're trying to address this with their husband or their wife. They're trying to address a situation in their children's lives. All right, well, let's just pray for them. Right, how many of us just pray without any degree of sensitivity to the Spirit? Well, we've prayed for children. I kind of got a file in the back of my head. Let me see. Let me go to number 28, number 28-7. Oh, Lord. That's the one for daughters who are in college. Um, Oh, God, we just pray for Kim at college. And uh, what comes with that file? Oh, there's people around her, and she's away from home. And, you know, all right, you know, we've been in church enough. We kind of got this file system in us. What What if God showed up to you in some unique, powerful way? Not all that bizarre. It's in the Bible. With something like a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom prophecy and you just begin to sense something from God and you begin to you begin to know how to sense that from God that might be a good starting spot right because I mean a lot of us honestly we don't know how to hear God the spirit wants to say something to us and you begin to get a sense from God an impression from God a word for this family and maybe you say I just have a sense that there's somebody in Kim's life right now that is about to pressure her in a very harmful way. I just believe we need to pray about that. Or that decision, I believe you guys are about to make a decision concerning your daughter. And, and I believe God would want you to know this or this or this. Right? That's not bizarre. That's the Bible. When we get together and we have meeting after meeting after meeting where we learn to pray scripted prayers that we've heard modeled and prayed by others, hey, that's not terrible. But it's not normal either. When you come together, each one has a something. Do you you feel the need to have something when you come? That's just not the leader's job. We don't just coast into a meeting. We hope the leader's prepared and he's got some good questions for that night and worship leader's got something going on. When you come, how does God want to use you? How has the Spirit given you abilities? You've been kind of cleaning the pipe out so you can hear from God. You've been hanging with God all week so that you're influenced by God and you can bring something into that meeting. See, that's normal. That's normal. Listen to where he goes. Each one of them has got something. One a psalm, one a doctrine, and a revelation. One an interpretation, one a tongue. When one gave his contribution, the others rejoiced and they praised God together. And they were all in a state of great joy and glory and happiness. Our danger is that we tend to judge and to think of the New Testament meetings with what we are familiar with in our deadness. Listen, we don't don't want to take our experience and impose it on the Bible and act like, well, the Corinthians may have been like that, but I bet the Galatians were like us. And, you know, I bet a lot of the other churches were just like us, having meetings just like us. Let's not impose ourselves on the Bible. The Bible seems to point out some interesting dynamic in these meetings. Here is joy. Here is inspiration. Here is illumination. Here is something that is given by the power and the work of the Spirit. 
There's so much life and power that the apostle has to say, now, you've got to control this. Let everything be done decently and in order. There were excesses in the church at Corinth. But what does Paul say to them? Does he say, never speak in tongues again, never prophesy again, never give vent to these feelings that you have within you? He does not say anything of the sort. The whole atmosphere in the early church was charged with the Spirit, and they expressed that in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The really important question for us to face is are we like the early church? Are we like the early Christians, rejoicing and praising God, filled with gladness and joy, so that we amaze the world and make them at times think we are filled with new wine? Let us avoid all excesses. Let everything be done decently and in order. But, but, above all, quench not the Spirit. Rather, be filled with the Spirit and give evidence of the fact that you are. That's normal. Let's stand up together. Father, help us even even right now in this meeting. Help us to switch gears here from listening to your spirit as you communicate through someone else to engaging your spirit in our own hearts, uniquely present here with us this morning. God, from the very front of this auditorium to the back, your passion was that no longer would you teach every man, know the Lord, know the Lord, but they would all know me. Oh, God, let it be true. Let it be true right now that there's not a person in this room whose heart doesn't leap with the presence, the living reality and presence of the Spirit of God, moving, animating, affecting their soul here right now. God, teach us how to engage you, how to receive from you. Father, where we've started today, I believe is the right starting place. This subject matters to you. You didn't stop talking about it. All throughout your word, right up to the moment of Pentecost, It seemed as though this moment on the calendar was an obsession for you. You so delighted in the day in which your spirit would commune and dwell and live in your people. Oh, Lord, we want to know more about that. We want to come near today. Lord, we want to venture closer than the mountain, God, closer than burning bushes. God, closer than something on the outside. God, we want to know something more that he's been with you, but he will be in you. Well, Lord, he's in in us. What does that mean? God, how do we experience more of you? Lord, prepare. Prepare our hearts, God. Even begin to move right now in this building, right now. God, in our lives, right now. God, open our eyes to let us see how this matters to you. Lord, affect us. Illumination is a work of the Spirit. God, open our eyes. Let us not be insensitive to what matters to you. God, may it be that we couldn't be a people like in Haggai's day that could live for another 16 years 
with your presence in our midst not a priority to us. God, you don't feel that way. It matters to you. Spirit of God, help it to matter to us this morning. God, begin to open our eyes. Begin to bring conviction. God, begin to bring an awareness as to where we have neglected the pursuit of your spirit. God, as to where we have misplaced this high calling and high priority that not everybody gets. Lord, where we have distanced ourselves and, and we've been okay with it. Lord, begin to awaken us. Lord, when was the last time we brought something with us? When was the last time we met with somebody? And we engaged somebody in their moment of need. That we were in a meeting where there was going to be prayer and fellowship. And we were bringing something with the Spirit's anointing on it. Your fingerprints were on it. God, the mystery had occurred. You had pulled back the veil. You were allowing us to see in the Spirit and to share that with another. God, you were giving us faith, Lord, overwhelming our hearts as a gift to pray for somebody. In an amazing way, God, you were bringing about the miraculous in our midst. Oh, Lord, we want to explore the work of your Spirit in our lives. God, this morning, would you, would you prepare that way? God, would you awaken us this morning? God, would you make this subject a leap off the page? God, it can't be Keith's subject. It can't be a subject in the Bible. God, it's got to be a subject that rings in our hearts because it matters to you, Lord. This matters to you. God, we pray this morning. We pray together this morning for a new normal. God, bring a new normal to Lakeview Christian Center. God, I don't know what the rest of the church world is calling normal. It might depend on the address. But God, would you help us? Would you help us? Oh God, would you please help us? Lord, I pray for some this morning to experience the, the spirit who gave Haggai a word coming to them. Lord, the great news in Haggai is they responded. They responded and they began to rebuild immediately. They were repentant. They began to rebuild ruins, seeking once again for your presence to be in their midst. Oh God, would you help us respond? God, come in your mercy. Let the subject find us today. God, let it not be something that we don't care about. It's the crowning jewel for us. It's a gift from you. If you're here this morning, and maybe, maybe this morning is the morning where God is wanting to restore you to himself for the first time. No matter where you've come from, you... you don't know what it is to have received God into your life by faith to give him all that you are to look to him to be your God your Savior to not just be a God who's a distant God some God in a mountain or God in a church God over there God in the sky God on some throne somewhere if you're here this morning and you've never experienced the indwelling God coming to you living in you giving you life from the inside out. Listen, if that's foreign to you this morning, in just a minute, we're going to have a close in some prayer. I want to invite you. I want to invite you even right now. Come. Come up here just for a moment. I'm going to have somebody come and pray with you. And they're just going to ask you how they can pray with you. If you're here this morning, you're saying, you know, I don't know that I've experienced the indwelling presence of God like that. I don't know if I know what it is to say, yes, I know I've been restored 
to God. And he, he dwells in me. He's, he's not just a God over there somewhere. He is in me. If that doesn't feel like something you know something of experientially in your life, listen, don't, don't waste another moment. If your heart this morning is telling you, I, I want that, well, then come up here and get it. Come get it. God wants to give it to you. He wants to let you know he's in your life. He wants to work in your heart and commune with you. It's passion for God. Anybody else, if you're here this morning, you want somebody to pray with you. Give somebody to come, come up and pray. And here's what I need the rest of us to do. I need everybody here. I'm assuming that if you're not up here right now, you're saying, you know what? I, I know something of the presence of God in my life. But I sense God wants me to know more of that than what I know right now. All right, if that's you, here's what I need for everybody here to do. Turn around, get on your knees if you're capable. If you can't, just turn and sit down. Turn around and get on your knees and listen for God. Just listen for God. Listen for the voice of God. Let God take you into the areas of your life that he wants to say, consider your ways, Keith, consider your ways.
trust that the Lord will have many words for us as we wait on him in weeks to come. But I have an impression to pray for a particular category this morning of folks, and I'm going to ask you to have some faith to stand up and receive this before we dismiss. If you are here this morning and this message finds you greatly under the conviction of the condition in which you find your life. Almost as though your walk with God in some ways feels like it's a little bit in ruins. It's just not nearly what it once was. And often you visit the thought of, how did I let it get this way? you for a little guts, so I want you to stand up. If that's where you're at right now, I want you to stand up. I believe the, word, the Lord has a word for you. challenge in a moment like this to sort of escape the orbit of your own failures in order to glance upon God but you're going to need to do that remember when we come to this word from Haggai it's to a people who don't appear at all to have been appealing to God God visited them God found them. God interrupted them. And maybe that's what God's doing this morning. So maybe you're here and you're saying, but you know what, Keith, I, I've not crawled across enough glass. This wasn't my idea. It just happened to be what was being preached this morning, and, and here I am. Okay, well, that's, that makes you just like this audience here. And listen to what God says. As there begins to be a work, and the Spirit of God begins to awaken folks in chapter 2. Haggai says by the Lord, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Even what they were rebuilding, even what they were rebuilding in that moment seemed as nothing compared to the past and what God had done in the past. Yet now, here's the word to you, Yet now be strong. Be strong. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. You have the promise of God's Spirit in your midst. If 
you feel like you're needing to rebuild, God says, good, get up and work. Be bold and strong in rebuilding because I'm with you and my spirit is in your midst. I've not parted. My covenant has not been broken. I'm in your midst. God, I pray for those who are standing right now. Lord, I pray that in what you desire to do in restoring normal to our lives, Lord, I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon these standing right here this morning. Maybe some who have the hardest time believing that, God, you'd ever do anything further in their lives. God, maybe having a hard time believing that you could pull them out of the ditch that they've been living in, a ditch of their own choosing. Or maybe some would feel just like the folks in this passage who've been busy building their own lives, have neglected you, and now are living in the consequences, and you feel so distant now to them. God, I thank you that a morning like this reminds us that your mercies are new every morning. That, Lord, though that might be the place where some of us feel that we're dwelling this morning, you've gotten our attention. You've sent a word to us. And you said, be strong, be strong. Go to work. I'm in your midst. I have not left you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for amazing grace. Thank you for your consistency. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Spirit of God, we want to see your work in days ahead. Lord, move through these guys right here. God, I pray. I pray for grace for them to lead the way. Lord, I pray that from the lowly place they find themselves this morning, God, you would flood and pour out grace. Your spirit would fill the lowly places. Lord, that here in this room, God, some would begin to be used in amazing gifts. They begin to serve you in ways they never imagined. God, you'd restore. You'd restore. as we dismiss remember this don't miss the point here don't miss the point the temple that they rebuilt here it, it was a small model compared to what used to be but don't miss the point the point was not in the externals the point was not in the dressing up the building the point was in the indwelling presence of God. The thing that they had missed all these years wasn't that they had a building. They had an incredible building. They had Solomon's temple. And God sent Nebuchadnezzar and burned it to the ground. Because what he wanted was to dwell in their midst, not to have a cool building. He wanted to dwell in their midst. So when they rebuilt a smaller building, hey, don't feel like, oh, I can never rebuild. Listen, what you're seeking to rebuild is the presence of God in your life. Not some former thing just the presence of God in your life. God will make sure he takes care of the rest. So can we have faith for that? Amen. Can we pray for a new normal? Amen. Thank you, guys. Y'all have a great week. Guys, don't forget the Royal Ranger lunch upstairs. Let's go help yourself some good food. <laughs>